This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. Our guest, Garrett Hope, has a broad career. Among other things, he's a composer, a music professor, and a career coach. His podcast, The Portfolio Composer, helps composers and performers to see themselves as people who are in business. And Garrett helps them to thrive in their careers. One of his current passions is helping people to make career pivots. Garrett understands that changing gears often involves getting over fear and focusing on opportunities, and also focusing on service to others. In this episode, Garrett will share tips and encouragement for a thriving career in difficult times. Garrett, it's always uh, so much fun to talk with people who've put together complicated careers. It's wonderful to see how their paths have evolved and how they're able to do a bunch of those things. And you really strike me as one of those folks who know how to juggle. You have a interesting combination. You're a composer. You've been a professor of music. Uh, you have a successful podcast, The Portfolio Composer. Uh, but what really grabs me is with your depth of music background, you're also a career coach. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to get into a bunch of topics related to both your music career and your coaching career. But please, first, can we start by having you tell us how did you create a career with so many facets that seem to kind of work together? (laughs) Yeah, well, Bev, if you had asked me this uh, 20 years ago when I started my career journey, um, I wouldn't have been able to predict where I've come. And, And I think that's probably true for most people. Sometimes we end up falling into large parts of what we do because of opportunity or, or luck. And part of what happened to me is when I was in my master's program, I had the opportunity to start teaching. And I wasn't looking to become a teacher. I was actually trying to avoid becoming a teacher. But then it turned out that I, I really like it. Uh, and not only do I en- enjoy it, it's if I discovered that it's really part of my DNA. It's who I'm made to be, to be a mentor and a communicator. And I love helping students have those aha moments. And it's not about communicating information. It's about life change, you know, transformation. And so uh, that was a long time ago. <laughs> and uh, I started then teaching a lot. And, and as, uh, after I finished my master's degree, I was an adjunct professor at, um, at one point four different institutions. And I was, I'd be driving up to 150 miles a day going from one school to the next, just to teach one class. And I, and I thought, you know, I just need to get my doctorate so that I can get a full-time position because that's how the game is played in academia. You, you get your doctorate and then you can apply for these tenure track positions. So I I got my doctorate and then I got a position and long story short, um, I ended up leaving academia because there's just so much, well, I, I, it's, it's not 
all sunshine and roses. And there are there's times where people can become really petty, but there's also some wonderful things where true collaboration can occur. But what really happened for me is I found myself in a position where I needed to figure out how am I going to pay the bills when I call myself a composer when I've really been paying the bills by teaching. And I began to explore the idea that I'm really a small business owner as an artist. And along with that realization, I then had to figure out, well, what does that mean? I have to learn more about marketing. I have to learn about finance. I have to learn all the things about business. And new worlds were opening up for me. And I, I opened up a piano tuning business here in Lincoln, Nebraska that I just closed actually it was, it was I, at one point I was turning away gigs cause it got so busy. Um, and then I was composing still. And, and so I slowly built what I call a portfolio of income producing activities because, and I, you talk about this on your show, the, the idea of a career, a stable one career you do for 30 years and then you can retire is really going away. It's not happening anymore even for people who are highly educated. And so what I'm trying to do is I took my natural gifts of mentorship and teaching. And as I was learning these things about business, I began sharing them with my community of composers and fellow artists. And that's why I started the podcast and I started doing the career coaching. So I call this uh, the a portfolio lifestyle. And the term is obviously borrowed from the investment world, where the idea is to have a variety of uh, investments in different assets so that you can outride any kind of waves in the market, right? And so when you are a self-employed person, uh, you what I'm encouraging people is to think of what they do as creating assets so that you then, if one income source goes away, you're not stuck up a creek. And for a, an artist and for a composer specifically, that's not just like putting in the time because we, we get paid for putting in time, but we're also creating these things that then can be resold. They're assets and that's the music itself. And you can reuse that asset in multiple ways and, and generate um, passive income even. But thinking this way is a new thing within the artistic community because we're not taught how to do this in school. We're taught how to become good students and we're taught how to write and play music beautifully, but we're not taught how to operate in the world as a business. This totally resonates with me. I have found that with clients, if we can get people uh, thinking like entrepreneurs and recognizing that they're always uh, needing to create value that's marketable, that mindset can change how people um, succeed, even if they have full-time steady government jobs or something like that. Having the idea that you are um, a bit of a small business anytime you're producing something, you want other people to pay you for it. It makes so much sense. I've worked with um, some writers and people with sort of helping careers, whether they give massages or they coach people. And I find um, there's often a lot of resistance as though by asking people to think about money, they're, they're being untrue to their calling. I'm wondering, is it even harder with musicians? How, how do you help them get past a, a concern that um, it won't be pure? And what are the kinds of things that performers 
um, can do to earn money while they're still um, keeping their vision of art alive? Oh, those are some really good questions. So the first one uh, about this roadblock that, that artistic types have, I, I think it exists in all fields, but it's really, really prevalent in the creative endeavors. And I believe the reason goes back to the 19th century uh, with the writings of Goethe and this rise of the myth of the tortured artist, right? We kind of yes. believe that real art comes from somebody who's living alone in a garret attic, struggling away to produce something monumental. Uh, and that's, that's a myth. The author Jeff Goins wrote this great book called Real Artists Don't Starve. And he goes through multiple examples of how real artists actually, they monetize what they do. Uh, that art is a service as well as a product. And so it lives in two different kind of worlds at the same time. And it's really all about serving somebody else. And speaking specifically about music, it almost all music written before the 20th century was written because someone paid them to write it. And in once we got into the, the 1890s and then into the early 1900s, musicians began divorcing the, the music they were writing from the people who would come to the audience. And it, it kind of uh, was based on this modernist idea of progression where things are constantly moving forward and advancing and evolving. And this led us to the second Viennese school, Arnold Schoenberg and Anton Berg and Webern, and they were writing this really dense, complex music, but it has no emotional connection with a majority of people. Now, I happen to really like that music, and a lot of people do, but th there's not an easy way into it. If you were to just to go to Spotify right now and pull up a piece by one of these people, you probably would not enjoy it. And that's because they were writing music because they felt like it was just the natural progression. And they were no longer considering someone uh, who wanted to sit in the seat and pay attention to it. Beethoven's greatest works, Mozart's greatest works, even Bach's, all these people, then what they did is they wrote music because they had a specific need and a situation and a commission. So that's operas, symphonies, even little children's pieces of music that, like, uh, you know, Feralis by Beethoven. He wrote that as a throwaway piece for a commission. But what piece do almost all piano students learn? <laughs> that one. And so the idea that you have to be a tortured artist living in poverty, I think, is just as pernicious, terrible thing, and I'm trying to destroy it. In your podcast, I, I looked at some of the reviews, and you've, you've had many episodes, and my impression is that um, you are teaching a lot of performers and composers um, about how to uh, create careers. That it feels like you've got a very enthusiastic and loyal following. What are the kinds of things you explore as ways to um, be commercially successful in order to pay the rent and at the same time uh, continue on in a music career? Yes. So I encourage people first to figure out who it is that they want to write music for or what kind of music they want to write. 
because there's so so many things. And when you go to school to to become a composer or a musician, you are expected to learn how to do all the things, which is great. These are tools in a toolbox. Uh, but once you move out into the world, you begin to see that you you develop some natural traction in certain areas. So for me, when I was a, uh, a student, is it even an undergrad? One of my first major compositions won an award, and it was for a choir piece. So I started digging deeper into choirs. And I grew up singing in choirs and playing in bands. And, and right now, I'm writing primarily for educational ensembles and doing some media work. Other people, they start getting opportunities to write for video games, or maybe they start writing for chamber music or orchestras. In the same way that I fell into the opportunity to teach, some composers just have opportunities present themselves to them. And, and they resist that because they think, oh, well, I can't just cut myself off. And they fail to realize that by narrowing down to a niche of, of a type of music or a type of people that want that music, they can serve those people better. And they'll actually create more opportunities because they try to be all things to all people. Composers often leave school and they say, well, I can do anything, so hire me for whatever. And when someone's looking for music, they're looking for someone who can do this or that. They're not looking for the everyman, handyman kind of composer. So that's how I, that's the first step I encourage people to take when they're, when they're building their careers is figure out what music you want to write and start finding the people who are interested in that music and serving them. And then if you want to change later, you can change later, but it's better to go deep one inch wide, right? Than to spread yourself super thin and not be able to go deep at all. So I was thinking about folks I know who are composers three of them is all I can think of. And they're all very much on a part-time basis. And what I noticed about this small sample of three is that each one of them has a certain kind of music that they care about. And I think of as their brand, but their portfolio uh, careers include things that are quite different. Um, They, Mm -hmm. they might uh, work with their hands. They might do office work. So they've, taken their music and focused it, but they've created a much broader career. Yeah. Is that? And that, that's pretty typical uh, because it's very hard to pay the, all the bills by doing just composition. The, the composer who only writes music is very rare. They're kind of a, a black swan, if you will. Uh, a lot of these composers have to build portfolio style careers. And I am very fortunate in that I I used both the opportunities that presented to me and intention to create my portfolio so everything is around music. Sometimes people just have to get a job because they have to pay a bills, and they then stay there, and that's okay. And I'm, I'm not trying to make people feel guilty at all. There's a lot of shame that people in these situations feel because they think, oh, man, i got to go to my office job, and I really just want to be a composer. No, you're still a composer. That's okay. But I, I want the, to encourage these people and your friends, if this applies to them, to begin thinking more broadly about their work as a composer. See, Bev, composers earn money in, in just a small handful of ways. 
first of all, we get paid to write music. So that's a commission. Someone says, I need a new piece of music and I want you to write it. So here's some cash, write it. That's great because those are often large sums of money, but they're one time. Then the composer can sell uh, their scores and recordings. So this is now, what, the first part is they're selling a service. Now they're selling a product. So if you have a CD or an album, that can that can be sold. Uh, I write sheet music that is purchased by band directors. So that's being sold. And then the third thing is now your music is also an asset. And so once you build up enough of a library and people are are playing it, if it gets streamed online, you get royalties. When it gets performed in concert, you get royalties through performance rights organizations like ASCAP and BMI. If it, you you license your music for synchronization so it gets used in a video or a movie. These are the major ways that composers make money. And so that's all the job of a composer. And then a lot of composers are also managing their own libraries. So as you write each piece, your library grows and this becomes exponential. And some composers then manage uh, subscriptions, basically. They'll, they'll rent their scores out. But ancillary to those three main activities is this person could give private lessons. A lot of composers will do clinician works or guest con conducting. So there's lots of ways to build out your portfolio if you think about this in a new way, rather than I'm just doing music writing. Does, does that make sense? Yes, it makes a lot of sense. And it's clear um, that you have given this a lot of thought. And you, you use the word intention. And I think you've been very intentional in structuring your own career and, and thinking about the careers of your listeners. So I'm guessing that all of that thinking about how to put the pieces together is what led you into career coaching. Is that correct? It is. And the fact that I found myself to be a natural teacher. And when I I've moved away from academia, I was trying to find avenues where I could continue to do that because I'm most fulfilled when I'm helping other people. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Are you ready to make a difference in the world? The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University can give you the skills to do just that. The school offers a multidisciplinary approach where public policy, environmental studies, and entrepreneurship come together to educate tomorrow's leaders. Learn more about the Master's in Public Administration or Environmental Studies by visiting ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School. So I uh, know from, again, reading um, about what you've been uh, working on, that you seem to be intrigued at the moment, like many of us are who are in the coaching business. Um, and, and that is how to help people make career pivots. And it feels like you found a way to keep people moving through what can sometimes be a challenging passage you want to talk about how you started focusing on this and, and how it is um, you think that people can make that period of transition successful? Absolutely. And 
yes, you're right. I am very concerned right now for all the people who are struggling. This pandemic has turned some industries completely on its head. And there are more unemployed people now than there have been in recent history. And the unemployment numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics are not entirely accurate because they stop counting what are called disenfranchised workers. When people give up, they, they're no longer part of the statistic. And you, they also don't count people who are only working part-time. So someone who wants a full-time position but got a part-time position no longer is a part of the statistic. So I think the situation is worse than the image is often painted to be. Um, but I'm also trying to create a way to help people get through this fear and to get unstuck. And the system I've created to help these people make pivots is called moving forward because I believe all they need to do because they have a unique skill stack a, 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 where a combination of their personality and their abilities, their experience and the skills they have, that makes them one of a kind. And they need to start looking at the world around them and seeing the opportunities. And I believe right now, Bev, that the, the, despite all of this that's happening, all the the unemployment and the jobs being lost and the turmoil, there are more opportunities because there's opportunities to serve people. So when you take that skill stack that makes you unique and you find where people have a need, that intersection is where the opportunity lies. Because if you can create a solution to somebody else's problem, there you've got an opportunity to create a business or businesses have problems that you can provide solutions for too. I mean, that's why they hire employees because they have someone they need to solve a problem for them. And I want to help people see these opportunities and make these small pivots and these shifts so they no longer feel stuck where they are and they're no longer mired in fear because fear often stops us. And that's the beginning of my platform for the, the forward. Should I, should I go through the rest of the letters? Yeah, and, and focus particularly on the fear. Sure. Yeah, so it starts with fear for forward. And I found that a lot of people, and this has happened to me too, when, when something happens, when you've lost your job or your job's at risk or you're doing something you don't like but you need to change, I think our typical response is, I'm not sure that I can do that. Or wait a second, I won't have a paycheck. Or I'm stuck because I'm worried about X or Y. Sometimes yeah. this is called your uh, kind of your your inner critic or your monkey brain yelling at you because it doesn't like change, and its job is to keep you safe. However, in order to move forward in life, we have to change. So change is hard, and there's resistance, and along with that fear becomes things like. Uh, not believing that you actually have the, the gifts and tools that you really do. And so I, I want to help people break through that. And a, a large part of breaking through the fear is seeing how many opportunities are around you. If you can see that there's places where you can go and you can serve other people, that you can make a difference in the world, then that fear starts to go away. Don't you find as a coach when you're working with folks that if you can get people to start taking steps, engaging in a little bit of action, no matter how small it is, that helps dispel the fear that lots of times confidence comes 
when you do something, it can be as simple as doing research or volunteer work or uh, talking with friends, but getting people to take those first steps can be start the end of fear. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think action is critical. Uh, We've all heard these analogies, right? That a car in motion is easier to steer. Well, it's absolutely true. If you want to pivot your career a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, you actually have to be moving forward. You used another F word um, again. So tell me, what are all the letters? Sure. Okay. So forward. So fear. And then we face our fear. We deal with opportunities. And then R was that we have to reframe the situation around us, reframe our history, reframe um, our past. And this is when, this is all related, right? These are overlapping ideas. But some people get stuck in the sunk cost fallacy. They'll say, oh, well, I went to school for eight years to become this, or I have so many years invested in this career here. Any place we've invested time, money, and effort, we feel like we should get a reward from that. And sometimes that doesn't come back to us. And it's sad and unfortunate. But someone stuck in the sunk cost fallacy refuses to let that go. And this is actually a real thing. And it's a problem for businesses. And it's a problem for people moving forward. That if you, are, or if you refuse to change and pivot, then you, you, you will be stuck there for a long time. And I'm trying to help people see that that sunk cost fallacy is, uh, will, will hold them down for one, but that all that experience and everything they've learned still is what makes them unique. So if we reframe all that experience and see who you really are, your talent stack, that combination of personality, experience, and knowledge, that that's what's valuable, not the time you spent in your career or how much time and effort and money you put into a degree. So that's F-O-R. And then W is web or your network because we can't do this alone. And you have to rely on a group of people around you who will, who will encourage you and also help you connect with other people. And your job to be in your web is to be the center, and your job is to connect other people. A network is not about getting things. It's about providing things to others. If one person in your network, a particular colleague or friend, is working on a problem or, or has a need, and somebody else in your network has a solution, your job is to put those people together and to provide value to the people that you know. And when you put out, more will come back to you. And then A is action. So that's where we're at here. So the, the action is super critical. And then our R at the end of the word forward here is results. And this is a really big idea, Bev. Our results come from the actions we take, which are inspired by the thoughts we have about the circumstances we find ourselves in. And I know this is a big idea to wrap your head around, but if you want to get different results, you have to start by changing your thoughts. And this gets back to seeing new opportunities and reframing things. Yes. And a lot of people, they they want do results, but they keep thinking the same things, which causes them to take the same actions. And then at the very end of the word forward is dreaming. And I know dreaming really should become a, at the beginning, but then I wouldn't be able to spell my word. And the it's such a good the, word. <laughs> it is. is to, to not – don't think small. 
Um, and, and I really want people to think of this as a, a way to serve other people. So like, how can you really make a difference in the world? And I don't know, I don't know who said it, but if you want to be a billionaire, you need to serve a billion people. <laughs> and so there's a, there's this weird correlation between our service and who we serve and how well we serve them with how well we're being paid because money is an expression of value and it's a, it's a flow thing. And so we just need to keep things moving. That's the action we take as well as the service we give. So that's the whole word. I, I like it very much. And I want to go back um, to one of the letters W and your concept of the web. I think um, we share a vision of how, networking works and something we talk about here on just about work a lot because it seems to be critical for just about any career move but i i liked what you emphasized that networking isn't about bragging about yourself it is about finding ways to connect with other people by helping them by being kind by serving them and the opportunities for that are pretty much limitless. And once you get in the habit, it's very self-reinforcing. And surprising opportunities always seem to come from it. Is that your sense? Oh, yes. I've had so many things come my way that I was not looking for because I was not focused or I was focused on providing value to other people. Uh, when I when we get focused on ourselves, our vision becomes myopic, and we fail to see where connections and opportunities are. And and so that's why I'm I'm really trying to help people think the, about in terms of service and connecting. And I love the term providing value. And this is when in your network you you read an article, um, and you think, oh, you know what? That's that's really relevant to. Jason and, and Emily, I'm going to share this with them. And you just send them an email and say, hey, I found this. I think it's right up your alley. Just reaching out. Hope you're well. And that that keeps your network alive and well. And that is hopefully benefiting them. You're not asking for anything in return. But as you said, things come back. More things will happen your way. And they'll think of you and provide opportunities for you. When I look over my life, the times my circles were growing the most uh, rapidly and successfully is when I wasn't thinking about my own career at all, but I was focusing on a mission. I was focusing on a cause. I was focusing on a, a goal. I, I think that's how it happens. Garrett, I just noticed we are running out of time and I don't want to leave without asking you a question, not about careers, but about music. I think so many people are longing to hear live music again and to to go to a concert and um, there's a lot of speculation out there. I, I think that concerts are going to come back in ways that are a little different. What do you think um, is going to happen with the uh, the near future of live music? How how are we going to start listening to that again, and what what will it be like? This is something that we're wrestling with within the artistic community uh, every day. I think one of the realities of the post-COVID concert world is that virtual performances are going to be with us for a long time. But we're going to have to raise the bar so that audio and video quality is really good. Because a lot of these things, though it's cool to see everyone playing in these boxed videos, sometimes they just don't sound great. 
or they don't look great. So we're going to have to get better at that. Um, venues are going to have to become more flexible. And I think some of the concert traditions are going to have to change or go away. Um, we There's going to be a new level of audience engagement. And this is because of the results of what's happening now with this virtual world. And it used to be, before Mahler, <laughs> that people would clap when, they, when the music resonated with them. They would clap between movements of a multi-movement work. And then Mahler, when he was conducting his orchestra in Vienna, he was like, no, you shall be silent. And so we've created this etiquette of you should sit in your seat and listen. And music is so much, so much more powerful than that. It, it, it moves people physically. And, and have you ever felt when you're sitting at a concert that you just want to cheer and yell because you just can't help yourself? Or well, dance. Or dance. And I think a lot of us are ready to bring that back into it. So let's create new spaces, both physical spaces and then the emotional room to do that in the concert. And as a composer, if my music resonates with someone, I want them to cheer. It's like, yes, because we're all in this together. It's not just the people up on the stage. It's the people in the audience too. And so I think these changes, and those are positive changes, are going to occur as we move forward. I think this is a really tough year, this year of 2020, but brutal. some good things are going to come out of it. Uh, we're going to look at things in fresh ways, and we're going to see opportunities that are going to come more quickly than we ever expected. I, uh, I think that concerts are probably part of that in the same way that careers are, and I'm so pleased to hear your enthusiasm about it. Oh, yes. If I could just make an invitation before we go, would that be okay? Please. I, I encourage those who are considering a pivot or know someone who needs to pivot to make a change to go to thepivotadventure.com. This is a two-day virtual conference that me and three other career coach colleagues have put together to kickstart your pivot, to help you get unstuck and move past that initial fear to build and find the tools you need so you could reshape your career. And so thepivotadventure.com. And Bev, I you can edit this out if you want, but I've actually created a coupon for your listeners. So if they type jazzed, J-A-Z-Z-E-D, 25, jazz 25, they can get 25% off the regular ticket price. That sounds terrific. I um, was just wondering, some... Uh, listeners will probably uh, tune into this long after uh, mm -hmm. the, this has occurred. How can they get some of the information? Sure. So they will sign up for the mailing list and we will be sending out regular updates and follow me and the Pivot Adventure on social media and we'll be doing more of this. We'll, we'll host the conference again in the future. It'll be a recurring thing. Um, and, and I understand that Podcasts are evergreen, and this conference that I'm talking about is the end of September, but we will be doing this over time, and I'm in this for the long game. I want people to have the encouragement and the tools necessary to move forward for as long as it takes, because there's a lot of people out there who need the help and the encouragement. So if you can follow me at GarrettHope.com on my social media, and I'll do everything I can to, to help you make your pivot. 
Terrific. Thank you, Garrett. And um, I hope we have a chance to talk with you again. And I hope the conference goes well. And, uh, you know, let's go out there and, and, and see what we can do to find opportunities. Absolutely. Thank you so much for letting me be on your show. This you so easy to talk to you, and this has been a wonderful conversation. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Bev Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. Today's tip is that when some jobs are disappearing, others are starting to emerge. And this difficult year is giving birth to lots of new opportunities. Many people are discovering that a career pivot can bring you fresh energy, new resources, and another path to success. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you'll come back soon for more good talk about building a rewarding and resilient career. And please tell your friends about us. Thank you.